I'm Christopher Leighton, and this is Open Source. It's Labor Day week, 2023, and Henry David Thoreau is the heart of our conversation. It's not with him, but it's driven by his example, American thinking at its best on the matter of how to make a living. I have no doubt that the Gabby man about Concord in the 1850s was a worker, expert surveyor, gardener, as many trades as fingers, he said, not to mention the writer of Walden, Civil disobedience, of course, and a life journal that came to two million words. We read Henry Thoreau anew for his insight into our work, not his. This often fruitless, driven, underpaid labor of the 2020s, and oddly enough, our midnight anxiety that ChatGPT could take it all away. I'm in the Harvard bookstore with our friend, the philosopher John Cagg, who co wrote this pungent and personal handbook titled, Henry at Work. So part of this book is about going through the pandemic and also through a cardiac arrest and bypass surgery and wondering what to do both with life and also work. and. My wife Kathleen and the kids were in Concord or in Carlisle, very close to Walden Pond. And it was an occasion basically to think, what would Thoreau say about our moment in which the way that we work was being revised and questioned and the meaning of life was also at the same time being revised and questioned. And I had always thought about Thoreau as a sort of vacationer at Walden um, when I was in elementary school and then in high school. But as I began to reread Thoreau during this time, my position changed. And I'll read just a little snippet about the transition that occurred. Why would Thoreau, who busied himself with scribbling, surveying, building, nannying, collecting botanical specimens, and otherwise occupying his time with a scattershot of odd jobs, including menial ones such as shoveling manure, have a reputation as the go-easy guru of uncluttered time and New England zen? So if you think of Thoreau as anti-work, maybe it's because Thoreau questioned why we work. He interrogated the employer and the employee. He called our labor contracts Faustian bargains. He claimed that men labor under a mistake. In this way, Thoreau made philosophy practical, even urgent. He walks us through the joys and risks of resignation, the rhythms of the workday, the often laughable promises of the labor-free techno-utopias, and yes, the eternal philosophical question, how much do I get paid and how much should I get paid? It helps me to picture the man. He's roughly 5'7", 130 pounds or less. He's never been healthy. He dies young of tuberculosis. He's prodigiously active, and he is unbelievably productive. 7,000 pages in his journal, the journal that Emerson urged him to begin, not to mention Walden and Cape Cod and Maine and civil disobedience and all the rest. As you say, he's a pencil maker, he's a surveyor, he's a teacher, a worker and a writer, and he connected them. Incessant labor with the hands 
engrosses the attention. Also, it is the best method to remove palaver out of his style. He wanted a working man's style. So, first mystery, he has a reputation as an idler, as a guy hanging around, you know, outside the courthouse or whatever in Concord and doing nothing. How did that label ever get attached to this man? I mean, the label of Thoreau the Idler follows him basically through his entire life. And when Emerson gives the eulogy at Thoreau's funeral, Emerson is basically saying that he was the captain of the Huckleberry Party. In other words, he liked to walk around outside of Concord and take the kids on berry picking parties. But what Emerson is missing and what Thoreau was always very conscious of is that what we oftentimes regard as the common business of living actually is the stuff of work. So what Emerson doesn't say is the kids that Thoreau was taking around on his Huckleberry party were the Emerson kids. And Thoreau served as nanny to Emerson when Emerson went abroad. And Thoreau lived in the Emerson household and was an active part of raising the kids and of domestic life at the bush, which is Emerson's house in Concord. And that oftentimes sort of drops out of the equation. We don't think of domestic work as, quote, real work, but it very much is. And when he goes to Walden, that's what he's up to. When he talks about the first chapter of Walden entitled Economy, he's really thinking about what it is to sustain ourselves as individuals on this planet in a place that we can sort of dwell in. And we oftentimes don't think about that as a, quote, real job. But what Thoreau is trying to suggest to us is that the real jobs that we have in life is to simply to support ourselves and to figure out what the necessities of life are, such that we don't get to the end of our lives and discover that we haven't lived. He wrote about make work. He wrote about meaningless work. The guts of your wonderful book, John, it seems to me, is a critique, a Thoreauvian critique of our work, our work today, what we call work, what we're missing in work. Well, except that he is, I think you say, the consummate worker. He said of himself, I have as many trades as fingers. He was deeply invested in it and observing it. He didn't want to be a farmer. He didn't want to be a lot of things. But bring it as nearly as you can to the present day. American work, we're overworked and underworked in a radical way, I think, in both directions. But what would Thoreau start noticing? Thoreau spent a lot of his time, as many of you know, walking around the area around Concord. I mean, his favorite essay is Walking, a lecture that he gives almost a dozen times over his life. And he would rove around the community. And what he noticed is that a very large number of farms had popped up which he calls the family farms. And these family farms were not just subsistence farms, but farms that really entailed growing for surplus and selling more and more crops. And he noticed something. He said that the farmers who work the farms were under the supposition or the belief that this type of life would make them free, make their lives better make them more profitable, make them richer. But what he found is that these farmers in his surrounding area were binding themselves to these large estates and then mortgaging their lives, their present day, for the promise of some future that would never come. And 
Thoreau was very concerned about that in terms of the nature of our modern work. How many people have ever had a mortgage in their lives? Yeah, it's not fun. And Thoreau never owned a house himself, ever. He wasn't just living on the dole. He wasn't living in this sort of very wealthy estate. But he would manage his desires so that he could live a freer life. And he was concerned that the types of jobs that we occupy today are those that allow us to pursue desires and, quote, the necessities of life that are, as he describes them, mere hindrances, the types of luxuries of life. So he would be concerned about making a living in our jobs in terms of our consumptive practices and really worried about our consumptive practices driving us into particular jobs that then don't actually let us to truly live. A, a close second being the way in which many jobs and many types of capitalistic, late industrial capitalistic jobs rest on the domination of others. And that's a very tied in second. One of the implicit themes in this book, John, and all the modern work on Thoreau is, is that he was a modern. The Industrial Revolution was alive and well on the Merrimack River in his time, and he foresaw what it would become. But in so many details, he sounds like a modern. He didn't want to do farm work. He said, I hate the present modes of living and getting a living. Farming and shopkeeping and working at a trade or profession are all odious to me. I should relish getting my living in a simple, primitive fashion. The life which society proposes to me to live is so artificial and complex, bolstered up on many weak supports and sure to topple down at the last, that no man surely can ever be inspired to live it. You speak of consumption, but I mean, the Industrial Revolution was here, but not advertising, not incredible pumping of our fantasies, our needs. He said the name of the game really was to figure out what we could do without and do it. But we have to get to the internet sooner or later and artificial intelligence. But imagine him critiquing the work that especially us in the word game, uh, do. The comment that he makes in Walden is simplify, simplify. And if you think about how complex our lives are and also how complex our schedules are, especially our corporate schedules or our working schedules, they are packed full. And one thing that Thoreau is suggesting to us is that the best type of making a living is one in which we can keep our minds free. And I'll just give you just a little bit of background. Sure. I didn't grow up in a household that actually valued that at all. My single parent mom was worried about me making enough money to sort of get by. And she encouraged me to work really hard. And the work ethic that I inherited was also the work ethic that Thoreau's Concord and Cambridge also was steeped in. The idea that you work hard and the idea of working hard is very close to being blessed. And Thoreau noticed that there was this type of promise that wasn't really working out for most people during the Industrial Revolution. You would work hard, but you weren't living a blessed sort of life. And so he suggests, kind of like Diogenes the Cynic, he says, stop associating with these very tightly knit organizations that work you to the bone. Think about work as a blessing, but a very simple blessing, a hands-on blessing. 
work has been regarded as a curse basically from Genesis on, right? And Thoreau is suggesting that work can be a blessing because it connects you to the earth. You figure out who you are through work. In part, it connects you to the people around you. And so he was very concerned about jobs that alienated, just in the same way that Marx in the 1840s is worried about the alienation of labor. Thoreau is right there in 1845, you know, contemporaries of Marx saying, I'm worried about very much the same thing in a New England setting. Imagine somebody comes to Thoreau today and says, Mr. Thoreau, I'm a researcher, writer. I'm about to be replaced by chat GPT. How... Mr. Thoreau, do I hack the market for self-employed moral reformers or even medical researchers or historians? How do I live a productive life, a meaningful life? In light of the rise of this artificial yeah. you know, labor market, yeah. Thoreau is going to suggest two things, that every single one of us is spending our lives right now. I mean, that's what we're doing sitting right here. And we do that a lot of the time at work. And no matter what you do, you're spending it. And the deadline is coming, not just the, like, the intermediate deadlines, but the real dead line. And, and that's going to be the case for human beings always. And that's never going to be the case for a modular GPT. There might be tasks that can be served by particular computer models. Thoreau was not a Luddite. I mean, he was an inventor. At certain times, he was quite optimistic about the technological age. But the fact of the matter remains that we need to figure out how to make our way in life. Like, we need to figure out the business of living. And that involves work. And we, each of us, needs to do that and it doesn't matter whether new tools come around the bend, they can serve particular purposes. That's fine. But they can't substitute for a human life, and especially not your human life, because you're still tasked. And I see a bunch of my students out here, I think about whether they would be satisfied with a GPT replica. We are a far cry away from the jobs that connect us to each other and connect us to ourselves and filling the gap by some, by some replica, I think. But again, the, the person who's just been laid off for an artificial intelligence machine, he's, she's a little bit desperate. How do I support myself, Mr. Thoreau? Are you suggesting I farm half an acre, or just what? It's a good question. I think Thoreau would start by saying he went through the economic panic of 1837. It was really bad. I mean, times were really tight. Thoreau worked on 75 cents a week for a long period of time, which even at that time was not a lot of money. And Thoreau's move to Walden to simplify his life was in part one of necessity. You don't have a lot of money, and surprisingly, you can still live, in fact, maybe live happily. That is not simply to romanticize poverty, which I don't think Thoreau necessarily was doing. But he did observe for most, most of his readers, at least, that they could do with a lot less. And he would remind them that the necessities of life are shelter, clothing, a vital heat, and in part companionship. 
And those things come pretty cheap. And they're not necessarily ones that we need very complex jobs for. He would in part suggest that resigning from a job or even being laid off, Mm. the modern age suggests that we are our jobs. In other words, when we get laid off, we lose a part of ourselves. And there's something to that when we dedicate ourselves to a particular job. But both the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, but also Thoreau, said that we don't need to identify so closely to the roles that we occupy in our occupational grinds. And that, I think, is a really interesting and helpful way of thinking because oftentimes when we lose that part of ourselves, we discover we have all this other maybe anxiety about finding a new job or finding a new calling or a way of life, but we also discover that we have a lot of other possibilities that we might have been obscuring by the jobs that we occupy. John, you remind me, this complicates it a little bit, but it comes out of your book too. 1852, I think, after Melville wrote Moby Dick, he wrote this classic story, everybody knows, Bartleby the Scrivener. He was a copyist, he was a human Xerox machine in a law office in New York, and at a certain point, when he was asked to do something, he said, I would prefer not to. And, (laughs) well, explain, I would prefer not to. And this became his, his mantra until he was fired. And the man stands as a sort of comment on maybe Melville's frustration with the sales of Moby Dick or who knows what, but a metaphor of just letting it go. I don't need this. I am not a copyist. I don't want to be a copyist. The one thing you don't mention is whether Thoreau ever read Bartleby the Scrivener. Do we know? I don't know that. And it's a fascinating question to ask, I think. Does anyone in here know? (laughs) I don't know. So in terms of Bartleby the Scrivener, he doesn't just lose his job. He loses his life. Because he decides not to eat. He says, I would prefer not, no thank you, to everything. And oftentimes we look at Bartleby and we think, oh, just a complete madman. But I don't think that. No. I think that Bartleby is up to something. I think he's exercising freedom in a very interesting way, which is to refuse to go along. I mean, when Emerson in Self Reliance says, Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. The nonconformity of life is an essential part for both Thoreau and Emerson. And it involves being able to, at least, opt out of what is regarded as self-evidently the right way to go. So pushing back against that and say, I would prefer not, I would prefer not, I would prefer not. I looked at it for a long time simply as an act of self-destruction. But I think it's also an act of freedom, self-assertion, but also a form of protest. If you think about the way that civil disobedience operates, another track that he writes during Walden, civil disobedience, which inspires Gandhi and the hunger fasts and the pushing back against certain types of life, this saying, no, no thank you, no thank you, I would prefer not, I would prefer not. I think that Thoreau is taking that in a fairly political way right around 1852 and 1853. If you think about like the trajectory the transcendentalists are taking in 1852 and 1853 toward abolitionism, which will end up in the emancipation. Yeah, slavery as a kind of work that 
Thoreau, of course, disapproved of, and nobody nobody would have wanted. It. I mean, how do we put that in the sort of the work consideration? This was a man, of course, friend of John Brown, and an ardent abolitionist. Right, but Thoreau observed that a lot of capitalist and industrial workers. Let me rephrase. A lot of the most successful in late industrialism and late capitalism, their wealth depended on the subjugation of a large swath of the population. And that's what would occur basically through the better part of the 19th century, including after Thoreau was gone in the 1860s, it continued through uh, Reconstruction. And Thoreau pointed out that a lot of our prosperity depended on jobs that alienated a large swath of the population. Yeah, um, another digression. One of the great wise men of this part of the world, in my opinion, is a guy named Arthur Kleinman. He teaches in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, but he's an MD psychiatrist. He spent a great deal of his work in China. He's one of my sort of go-to people. What's up, Arthur? (laughs) What's troubling us? And he said to me not so long ago, the mark of our age is not Donald Trump. It's burnout. What do you mean by burnout? It's the detachment of zeal from the work we do. And he included specifically doctors and professors and teachers, as well as the whole gamut of not-so-interesting work. And I'm, I'm still trying to figure out why now? What is it about this period in which people seem to be not necessarily resigning, but withdrawing their vital energy investment? Yeah. I think in part we've hooked up the way that we work with what philosophers call the hedonic treadmill. And the hedonic treadmill is basically that the pleasure of life, that we pursue particular ends in life, and we get those ends, and then they don't turn out to be what we expected. Maybe we don't get them at all. Maybe they we discover that we destroy them in the process of getting them. The desires that we have in life don't necessarily work out the way we want. But we've hooked that up very tightly with the work that we do. In other words, we work in order to make a living. And I mean that in a monetary sense. And when we discover that the hedonic treadmill isn't working out for us, all of a sudden, the reasons why we work no longer make great sense. And I think that that's the sense of vacuum that many people encounter, where they think, Um, Albert Camus says in the middle of the 20th century, you go to work, you get on the subway day after day after day, and all of a sudden you arrive on the subway and all of a sudden you say, why? Like, why the hell am I going to work? What is this? And the absurdity of the situation sort of strikes us all of a sudden. I think it's in part because we've tied our work to these extrinsic goods, in other words, goods that are only good because they get us other things that we think are going to make us happy. Like, I think that the iPad's going to make me happy, or I think the newest version of this car is going to make me happy. And then I'm absolutely shocked and disappointed when it doesn't. When in fact, the major issue is that I'm just not happy with myself, and I'm not happy with the work that I'm doing at all. But if we detach those two things, Thoreau suggests, we might find more meaning in our actual work, in the intrinsic goods of like putting our hands in the soil, putting our hands into the dishwasher, just doing pretty 
tactile things with others. You know, speaking to my students, noticing that Dylan is over there hiding in the back because I get to say, like, I'm sorry that I didn't call you about your last paper. And it's this type of connection that somehow is good in itself. And I think that Thoreau would suggest that that's sort of lacking because of the hedonic treadmill being hooked into our everyday life. As you speak, it's a very funny position for a guy to take in the town of Concord. I mean, he was not idle, but there he was in the middle of a town where everybody knew him. And he's sort of saying, I wouldn't do your job for, for gold. To farmers, to people who are working, this is where he gets his idol. Oh, you're just standing there mouthing off. What did they make of him? Did any one of the farmers say, come out and work with me for half a day and, and um, you'll understand this world better? Um, well, I think that the family farmers around Concord thought that he was a complete lunatic. There's some evidence to that fact. I mean, some farmers came around and said, why are you hanging out with the bullfrogs? Why are you studying them? Silly old Thoreau. Even at the beginning of Walden, he opens Walden by saying, I'm writing this in part because I've gotten so many questions about how I've lived. Was I lonely? How did I go on in this strange, peculiar fashion? And those questions reveal that people were puzzled by his behaviors. At least in part, he also went out and was willing to live with the proverbial nobodies of society. I mean, he was living with or very close to Irish workers who were working on the railroad. Building that railroad that nobody needed, right? Right. <laughs> and then that we use now all the time, sort of. Commuter rail. Kind of. But also um, former slaves. And he's, he's really surrounding himself in a community out near Walden Pond that is not typical Concord life. Now, what I will say additionally is that the workers that actually worked with him saw him as very normal. In other words, when he suggested there was one occasion where he went out and cut ice with a number of workers to cut ice for refrigeration. And these workers didn't think that he was strange at all. He just thought that he was working. Mm -hmm. So... The man wrote so beautifully and spoke so beautifully. You just remind me, though, of not his last words, but so an aunt asked him toward very near the end, um, Henry, have you made your peace with God? And Henry responded, I wasn't aware that we had quarreled. Um, toward the end, he is reflecting on this whole thing. What do you determine was for him his most satisfying work? What did you do in your 44 years, Henry? He surely asked himself, what did you accomplish? I have two answers. The first is that he always wanted to be a poet slash be a writer. And you don't write two million words in your journal without really thinking that this is a meaningful task. He really wanted to document what his life had been like and also what his life could mean. And then using his own life to provide some sort of exemplar for us. So I do think that his writing is the what he regarded as his life's work. But I also think that that writing is also an issue about, philosophically speaking, giving a good account of your life before you're gone. That's really the task of life. Mm -hmm. Can you give a good account? The Greeks would call it an apology, an apologeia. Can you give a good account of 
why we're here, why it's not been a complete waste of time. And his journals and Walden were an attempt, I think, to give an account of himself. I mean, that's a real task of life. But I also think that figuring out the proper orientation to nature was for Thoreau a real job. You had mm. to work at it. Mm. You had to work at your insight. Yeah. John, let me say, you and your co-author have fascinating um, stretch on what philosophers' work amounts to. Not how you justify it, but what it really consists of and what you're trying to do. Philosophy as work. So philosophy oftentimes is regarded as the most completely arcane (laughs) of disciplines, like way up in the clouds. And you can think, why do you ever do that? And my grandfather was one of these people. He was a very practical man. And he would say to me, why do you want to be a philosopher? Like, give me a break. Do something practical. Be a pharmacist like me. You know, heal people. And um, I took that for a long period of time. But then I went on and became a philosophy professor. But then when he turned 98, he started calling me. And he had real questions. Like, is there a God? Did I live a good life? Is there an afterlife? Has my life been worth living? And all of a sudden, philosophy seemed to have like a real life and death importance for this man who had always poo-pooed it. And at that point, it gave me some insight about what philosophy can do. Yes, it should give us some idea about the structures of society, the concepts that we use, the language that we use, some clarity about those. But I really think, and I think Thoreau also felt, that philosophy should be understood as a way of dealing with the most tragic, problematic aspects of human life. Why do you die? Why do you suffer? Why is life worth something rather than nothing? You can't go to a pharmacist and get answers to those questions. What can I take to make me stop thinking about this stuff? Yeah, but philosophy gives you some spring training for the hardest moments of life where you consider these really difficult issues. Tragedy, finitude, human finitude, betrayal, the issues of love, the issues of friendship. And it gives you, I think, some real clarity about that. What is fun, for example, um, and what is not. Mm-hmm. So I think that Thoreau would encourage us to think about philosophy in that sense. But I also think that he, like Emerson, wanted to be a poet rather than a philosopher, hmm. which I think is an interesting turn on what we typically think of philosophy today, because it's awfully logical instead of poetic. Thank God for Thoreau, but who else in our world, in the 21st century, do you... I mean, we're talking about incredible power of his prose, critical moral energy critical independence, rootedness in nature, including human nature, and influence as a writer. Who, who in our world today plays that kind of part? I'm going to be rather cynical about this because I actually don't think, I could be wrong, but I think that most of the people I would mention, and I will mention them in a second, do. are not the people we know. And I think that there's a reason for that uh, because... We live in a time that is not necessarily as amenable to carrying along a Thoreau into the next century. I'm thinking of this gentleman, David O'Hara, 
He's not famous. He teaches philosophy at Augustana University, but he also teaches environmentalism. Augustana University is in the middle, northern Midwest, and David knows Latin and Greek and German and French and anything else you want to know, but that's not why I bring him up as a Thoreauvian scholar. It's because he goes on basically every single social and political activity that students go on, and they go all around the country. Additionally, he takes students everywhere from Paraguay to the Arctic Circle. And we don't know him. I wonder if there's a reason why we don't know him. Maybe our culture has shifted a little bit. And I could name, there are obviously more prominent individuals, but I think the point that I'm trying to make is that the most Thoreauvian among us might not be the ones that we actually notice. And I think that that's something to think about. I'm wondering about campuses, including the ones in this neighborhood, who are the figures who, who stand for wisdom, not specialized information or science or doctrine of any kind, but I'm thinking of Harold Bloom. Harold Bloom played something of that role in my life, and I think in the wider world. I mean, where shall wisdom be found? And he was always looking for intellectual depth and aesthetic splendor, as he said, but at the end, wisdom. How many people are known for, you better take that course, there's a certain ultimate, not ultimate wisdom, but a search for wisdom. Right. Thoreau was a teacher in a certain sense, in a very real sense, for his high school students and his middle school students. But he was so hands-on. In other words, he was so tactile about his lessons that a lot of the individuals that we might think in our most esteemed universities, it's not clear to me how hands-on they get. What do you think of that? The tactileness versus the, the sort of Thoreauvian get-into-the-mud-ness. Yeah, but he got into values and truth and the big things. I mean, Robert Coles taught a famous course here, most famous gut at Harvard, they called it um, Guilt 101, but it was basically the literature of social realism. It strove for, for wisdom. I'm also thinking, somebody in your book nominates David Foster Wallace as a kind of critical, independent eye on culture and politics and everything. I mean, was that your thought? And then, inevitably, Wendell Berry yeah. comes up as that kind of seeker. I think Wendell Berry is a great example of that type of seeker. W.S. Merwin, the poet W.S. Merwin, and Wendell Berry are both really in the Thoreauvian mold. But I would also notice that they're, maybe we know them here, but they're not household names. They are relegated to a certain quadrant. That's a symptom of a particular type of culture. Hmm. I remember interviewing W.S. Merwin at the very end of his life. He was a poet laureate. He wrote about nature very vividly. And he lived in um, this sort of Hawaiian conservation area very beautiful but so detached so far away it struck me that the distance that these thinkers and writers and poets had from a culture that desperately needed them this isn't the 60s or 70s anymore Hmm. and it's different and we have to figure out what that difference is and how to reclaim something of that ethos I think I think that's what Thoreau would want for us. He would want... He would want us to reclaim something of the poetic sensibility and integrate it into our 
mainstream culture in a way that doesn't alienate us or make us feel bad, but in a way that enlivens us and makes life fun. <laughs> That's good. Thank you, John Cag. With Jonathan Van Bell, John Cag is the author of a new book from Princeton University Press called Henry at Work, Thoreau on Making a Living. Thanks to you out there for being part of our conversation. 